Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It is Friday, September 16th, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Last Friday, Andrew, lawyers for Penguin Random House and the Department of Justice made public their post-trial briefs in the DOJ's bid to block PRH's acquisition of its Big Five rival, Simon & Schuster. As you said in your PW reporting, these briefs likely serve as the penultimate act before Judge Florence Pan rules in the case. And no surprise, according to those briefs, both sides think they made their cases superbly well. Yeah, so the post-trial briefs are in, and yes, these are the last scheduled filings before Judge Pan delivers her decision in the case. Now, that doesn't mean we couldn't see more filings to come because there are always disputes that pop up, particularly around evidence and confidentiality. So there could be more paperwork to come. But in terms of substantive arguments in this case, these filings basically represent the last licks for each side. You can read my report on the Publishers Weekly site and actually read the briefs on the PW site as well. And there are actually two filings for each side. One is called a finding of fact brief in which each party lays out their sort of view of the facts of uh, that were presented at trial. And the other is an objection to the other party's finding of facts. So basically what you have is a party saying – Here's our read on the facts in one brief, and here's why you should ignore the other side read in the second brief. And Chris, as you say, each party in their briefs claims they won the case. Uh, In PRH's post-trial filings, uh, their attorneys reiterate their claim that the government's case basically focuses on this flawed, non-existent market segment. That is, advances for top-selling books over $250,000. And thus, because of that narrow focus, it fails as a matter of law. And furthermore, even if the court somehow accepts the DOJ's allegedly ill-defined relevant market here, that market of advances over 250, PRH attorneys also contend that the government, well, they failed to show enough harm. They failed to prove their case, at least not enough to justify blocking this deal. Meanwhile, in their post-trial briefs, lawyers for the Department of Justice say they have easily proven that PRH's acquisition of Simon & Schuster is anti-competitive and should be blocked. And now we wait. Judge Pan is expected to rule swiftly. We've heard November, but as I said a couple of weeks ago in this podcast, I'm actually taking the under. And I sort of expect a ruling much earlier, perhaps even as early as the first week of October. Well, these briefs really are a window into how each of the parties thinks about the cases, you say. And so I want to ask you about a sense of what each side has highlighted for Judge Pan in these filings. What are the arguments and evidence that they think will decide the case? Sure. So, well, you know, that presumes that the law and the evidence are going to decide this case. And I'm not sure at this point whether the Penguin Random House lawyers believe that this case is going to entirely come down to the law and the evidence. But a little more on that later. You know, to to, to answer your question, I guess we'll start with Penguin Random House. And the major argument for Penguin Random House is that the government pretty much invented this submarket of authors, right? This 250K or more advanced market. And remember a trial the Penguin Random House lead attorney, Daniel Petrocelli, opened his case by accusing the government of creating an artificial market to create artificial concentration to create artificial harm. And that's basically what the case comes down to now as far as PRH lawyers are concerned. There's no evidence of consumer harm here. Indeed, the DOJ does not contend that, uh, at least not in any uh, meaningful way legally. And the only harm to authors 
which is the foundation of this case, is this small window of authors who were getting these big advances. And even then, Penguin Random House lawyers say in their briefing, the trial focused more on even a smaller subset, like these authors who earn multi-million dollar deals, the elite of the elite, as PRH lawyers called it. And these authors, attorneys say, are not in need of antitrust protection because at the level they're at, publishers are always going to compete hard to acquire their books. Uh, and the reason this case has come down to the super small set of authors, Penguin Random House lawyers argue in their brief, is because the government at trial simply can't identify any other way to block the case. They say this case thus must fail as a matter of law. And they argue that because the FTC's merger guidelines and the government can only block a deal if that deal is likely to cause, and here's the legal standard, likely to cause substantial and imminent harm to competition in a relevant, well-defined market – well, the case fails. The government, PRH lawyers insist, simply has not made that showing. And the DOJ, of course, begs to differ. Indeed, they do. Indeed, they do. The DOJ argues that uh, the proposed acquisition is, and I'll quote them here, precisely the march toward concentration and monopsony power that Congress enacted the Clayton Act to prevent. And they insist that this proposed merger would substantially lessen competition for authors' manuscripts. Authors' advances are going to fall, the DOJ contends, contractual terms are going to worsen, and the diversity of stories being told would narrow, they argue. And this is kind of where the public impact comes in, the idea that less diverse stories would be told. Uh, and all the government needed to do, DOJ lawyers say, was show some credible evidence of that harm in a discrete market segment, which they say we've easily done. That's anticipated top selling books, those books that are getting those $250,000 advances or more. In terms of the trial, the DOJ brief scoffs at the case presented by Penguin Random House. You know, first, in terms of competition, the fact that on some occasions, small publishers win big books, which was kind of what was presented at trial, does not change the competitive reality, the DOJ brief points out. Second, uh, Penguin Random House's argument that literary agents really have a lot of control over the market is unpersuasive. And indeed, they point to a record that's filled with examples of publishers' ability to insist on terms that are, well, beneficial to them, but not so beneficial to authors, whether it's, you know, standardized royalty terms or a mandatory transfer of audio rights or a longer payout timetables. And of course, reduced digital royalty rates. Low ebook rates have been a bone of contention in the field for some time and have been pretty much immovable since the early days of the ebook. In fact, allowing this merger to proceed would, and I'll quote here again, enhance the ability of the major publishers to force more odious contract terms on authors, DOJ lawyers argue, because it would create this undisputed leader who would then set terms that other firms could follow, sort of a follow the leader thing here. And third, DOJ attorneys insist that Penguin Random House's suggestion that internal competition among Penguin Random House and Simon Schuster editors within the merged firm would you know, pretty much eliminate all the potential harm from the merger. But that, DOJ attorneys say, simply runs contrary to common business sense. Uh, in fact, DOJ attorneys say this case is straightforward. Uh, the merger is going to eliminate a key competitor to this massive top player in a market, and it's going to lead to one entity controlling 50% of the market share. So clearly illegal under case law, the DOJ argues, and clearly illegal under the FTC's merger guidelines. You suggested earlier, Andrew, that PRH lawyers really don't believe the case will be decided on the facts or the law. What do you mean? Yeah, so... You know, as we discussed on a previous episode, I think it's pretty clear that Judge Pan 
Well, she was not terribly impressed with Penguin Random House's defense at times. Uh, certainly those of us in the courtroom uh, and other courtroom observers, too, felt, and I know PRH officials felt this, too, there was some sense around the case that Judge Pan really wants to block this deal. Now, remember, she's a newcomer to the circuit court. She's already been elevated to the Court of Appeals by the Biden administration, and the Biden administration clearly wants this deal blocked. So I don't know, maybe this is all just managing expectations on the part of Penguin Random House lawyers, but the sense that I got in speaking with the legal team over the course of the trial and seeing the way they're carrying themselves after the trial is over, that they really believe that Judge Pan wants to find a way to block this deal. But I'm not so sure. You know, First off, I don't think Judge Pan wants to watch her new colleagues on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, or the D.C. Court of Appeals, I should say, overturn one of her biggest decisions. You know, that's not exactly arriving in style. So I think Judge Pan, as she always is, I'm sure, but I think she's going to be extra careful to get this case right on the law and on the facts. And again, I think she always tries to do that, but I think there's even a little more pressure to do it right for this case. At the same time, I can understand why observers and even why Penguin Random House attorneys would feel less than enthused because from the bench, Pan really did not appear to buy Penguin Random House's testimony. But I doubt that's because she really has it out for them. Let's be honest. You know, look at the record. You know, look at the tweets of the testimony. You can go back. My colleague John Marr tweeted it. You know, the views put forth in defense of this deal, <laughs> they were not terribly persuasive. It was kind of what you would expect from a trial. You know, the DOJ characterized Penguin Random House's defense as the idea that everything is sort of random in publishing, that, you know, big books happen and small books get big and there's really no rhyme or reason to it. But that just sort of, you know, defies the way publishing works, the DOJ says. You know, in the end of the, at the end of the day, uh, the publishing industry and the way it works does not defy rational economic laws of the universe. It just doesn't. And Judge Pan, who's clearly very, very intelligent, you know, to her, the peculiar customs of the publishing industry did not confuse her in the slightest. And while she may have been a little bit tired of being told that our funny little industry is too weird for her to really understand, and maybe she let that show a bit through her questioning, I think it would be a mistake, as it is with any trial, to read too much into the questions she asked from the bench. Now, my take is that she still has to find a way to square all of what she heard at trial with the law. And I think Penguin Random House, while unsuccessful, it pulling Judge Pan down this rabbit hole of publishing vagaries and confusing her about how the market works, did in fact still present a pretty compelling defense against the DOJ's really narrow and somewhat novel case. So for me, going into the final weeks before we get a verdict here, it's still a coin flip. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on the next podcast from CCC, Leading into the Frankfurt Book Fair in October, Rudiger Vishenbart has again surveyed the state of the book business for his annual report, Global 50, The Ranking of the Publishing Industry. While the Global 50 remains devoted to tracking the book market, the report this year also highlights growth in the so-called untracked part of the market. We are back into how simple it is, how low the the, uh, the entry point is to bring stuff to the crowd in various forms. And uh, all these authors going for self-publishing have figured out very quickly how to create communities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, then a traditional publisher said, oh, we are not so dumb either. And they uh, organized similar community organizing tools. 
But all these things are either not at all included when we see NPD figures for North America, Nielsen figures for uh, the United Kingdom, or uh, media control figures for Germany. Why not? Not because these people are ignorant, but they are used to tap into point of sale. There is no, uh, no cashier. Yeah? And therefore, it's so difficult to measure that. Global 50 Report ranks world publishers coming on the next CCC podcast. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts. And please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening to this Velocity of Content podcast from CCC. Mm-hmm.